Chapter 4 of Napoleon, a short biography. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Napoleon, a short biography by R. M. Johnston. Chapter 4 Campo Formio and Egypt. Armistice of Loben. Fall of Venice. Peace of Campo Formio. Methods of the French armies and of Bonaparte. His relations with the Directoire. The Eastern Question. Expedition to Egypt. Capture of Malta. Battle of the Nile. Campaigns in Egypt and Syria. Return to France. Two phases of Bonaparte's campaign of Italy have now been reviewed. The first essentially offensive, during which the French swept the Austrians back from the Alps to the quadrilateral, the second essentially defensive, during which they reduced the fortress of Mantua and foiled every effort to relieve it. The third and last phase was to be offensive once more. A new Austrian army had been formed numbering about 50,000 men and had been placed under the command of the young Archduke Charles, who had just begun his brilliant military career. Bonaparte was slightly stronger in numbers, and maneuvering with wonderful strategic skill, first through the upper Venetian provinces, then through the Julian Alps, he constantly outgeneraled his opponent, won a number of small engagements, and forced him steadily backwards. So relentlessly did he urge on his columns that on the 7th of April he had reached the little town of Lioben on the northern slope of the Alps, less than 100 miles from Vienna. Then at last Austria acknowledged defeat. An armistice between the two armies was agreed to and the basis for negotiating a peace. Just at the moment when the negotiations of Lyoben were freeing the French army from all anxiety in the north, the inhabitants of the Venetian mainland, long dissatisfied with military rule and rapacity, rose against the invaders. At Verona and elsewhere, massacres took place. Nothing could have happened more opportunely for Bonaparte. The excuse was a convenient one for coloring the spoliation of the ancient Republic of Venice, the neutrality of which neither France nor Austria had respected, the spoils of which both had coveted. The Doge and Senate were too weak to offer any resistance, and on the 11th of May the city was occupied by French troops. The long history of Venice had come to an inglorious, nearly unnoticed close. Bonaparte spent that summer at the castle of Montebello near Milan, conducting the peace negotiations with the Austrian commissioners. With the attractive but extravagant Josephine by his side, he held an informal court to which many were attracted by the grace and beauty of Madame Bonaparte, but most by a curiosity to see the extraordinary soldier who in a few short months had carved himself a place alongside of the greatest captains of all ages. On the 17th of October, peace was signed at Campo Formio. Its chief provisions were those that gave France the Rhine as frontier, that stipulated for the recognition by Austria of the newly formed Ligurian and Cisalpine republics, Genoa, Lombardy, Modena, 
and bologna and that transferred to austria as a compensation for lombardy venice and her adriatic provinces in the account given of the campaign of italy the military operations have hitherto received nearly exclusive attention there are a few other matters however that deserve passing notice the french army unpaid weak in commissariat loosely disciplined followed by a horde of needy and not over-scrupulous adventurers made the people of italy pay dearly for the introduction among them of the glorious principles of the revolution even bonaparte who from the point of view of military efficiency disliked and did his best to prevent license made the italian cities disperse largely in return for the measure of liberty he brought them enormous contributions of war were imposed and these took the form in part of a seizure of the treasures of italian art for the benefit of the french national museums bonaparte pushed his odd and inexpensive collecting mania to great lengths denuded northern italy of nearly every masterpiece and was accordingly elected a member of the institut de france how complacently he viewed this queerly won scientific distinction may be judged by the fact that for several years after he frequently wore the official dress of his new colleagues and generally began his proclamations after the following fashion le citoyen bonaparte membre de l'institut commandant en chef etc notwithstanding the corruption that attended the contracts for the provisioning of the french army it seems pretty clear that the fingers of the general-in-chief remained clean large profits accrued to him legitimately in connection with prize money but that was all the genius of bonaparte had been felt not by his army alone the magnetic influence of his superiority had touched the directoire but for the present there was no obvious jealousy or estrangement between that body and its masterful general each felt a need for the support of the other when in the summer of seventeen ninety seven there was fear of a new reactionary movement in paris bonaparte gave his uncompromising support to the government offered to march to paris with the army and sent general augereau to carry out the directoire's mandates for suppressing its opponents the purging process then carried out in the ranks of the royalists and conservatives is known as the revolution of fructidor what is perhaps most important to note in this connection is the fact that the victorious army had now become the mainstay of the republic the revolution had swallowed up all that was best fitted to govern in the civil population of france all the elements of strength and character were now to be sought for in the army alone and the soldiers led by generals like jourdain bernadotte augereau Murat, victor ney and others comrades who had carried the musket and risen from their ranks were democrats to the last man towards the close of seventeen ninety seven france being now at peace general bonaparte proceeded to paris where he met with a triumphant reception in this connection it may be well to notice an important aspect of his remarkable personality he not only knew how to win a battle but also how to make the most of it at that period newspapers were few and made little effort to obtain news at first hand 
there were no special correspondents at general bonaparte's battles but he took care in person that they should be duly recorded his bulletins written in a rhetorical style suited to the public and military taste of his day rarely mentioned the general-in-chief gave the credit of every achievement to the soldiers but never failed when expedient to distort and falsify facts all to the greater glory and profit of napoleon bonaparte his numbers were always understated those of his opponents exaggerated even defeats such as that of caldiero were officially travestied into victories thus a perfectly deceptive legend began to come into existence from the first weeks of the campaign of italy and thus it was studiously continued even in the last painful days of the prisoner of st helena even in the last clauses of his will at the directoire's official reception of the general on his return to paris in seventeen ninety seven this talent of his for impressing the public mind was visibly manifested for he carried in his hand to present to the government a parchment scroll which was the treaty of campo formio and behind him was displayed a large tricolor flag covered with gilt lettering recording the sixty victories of the army he had commanded the capture of one hundred and fifty thousand prisoners of one hundred and seventy colors of fifteen hundred cannon the wild enthusiasm displayed by the spectators of this dramatic scene did not lead bonaparte as it might have a weaker or more short-sighted man to bid too openly for popular support he declined to show himself in public and even when he went to the theatre generally occupied the darkest corner of his box with him this was all a matter of calculation he saw no real political opening for the present or as he put it the pear was not yet ripe and he did not want the parisian public to take him up like some new toy and then quickly tire of him at first bonaparte's idea appears to have been that he might be brought into the directoire but the fact that he was only twenty-eight and that the legal age for belonging to the executive body was forty served as a good excuse for keeping him out the question was how was he now that the continent was at peace to keep himself before the public and earn new laurels and the only hope of solving this question lay in the circumstances of the maritime war still proceeding with england the directoire was as anxious as the young general that he should find some military employment and he soon left paris with a small staff personally to inspect the french ports and camps facing the british coast along the channel this inspection proved unsatisfactory and bonaparte decided that there was nothing in this direction to tempt him but as a result of the last war between france and england there was an attractive theory firmly fixed in the public mind a theory on which military action might be based a theory still of considerable moment in world politics in the war which was closed by the treaty of versailles in seventeen eighty three france had won the honors and great britain had met with many reverses french fleets had swept the channel english commerce had been harried the american colonies had become the united states 
france had made territorial gains yet within a few months of the peace it was found that british prosperity was greater than ever increasing by leaps and bounds whereas france was heading straight towards bankruptcy what was the explanation of this curious result it would be out of place here to discuss the economic aspects of this question to state the opinion then generally accepted in france is all that is necessary that opinion was that the prosperity of great britain was chiefly due to her possession of and commerce with india therefore to deal an effective blow at great britain it was necessary to strike at india bonaparte through all his life accepted this as sound doctrine the only question with him was how was india to be reached there were at that day as there are now three lines of approach from europe to india one by sea one by land the other of a mixed character the sea route was that leading from the atlantic round the extremity of africa into the indian ocean the preponderance of england in naval strength placed this line of approach virtually under her control and although the possession of the cape of good hope did eventually become a matter of dispute operations on this line were never seriously contemplated by france the land route was one that should lead from russia or asiatic turkey through persia and afghanistan or beluchistan to the valley of the indus in the year seventeen ninety eight it was far removed from any political combination that the french government was in a position to attempt though ten years later it entered the field of practical politics the third line of approach the most rapid and convenient was that running through the mediterranean to egypt and thence either overland or by the red sea bonaparte was a son of the mediterranean his imagination had often evoked visions of oriental conquest he now eagerly took up the idea of dealing a powerful blow at great britain on her line of approach to india his immediate aim was to establish the power of france in egypt his ulterior one not well defined he probably viewed as possible the eventual marching of an army from egypt to the confines of india the directoire pleased at the thought of ridding france of the presence of one in whom they detected a formidable rival equipped a large fleet and placed a fine army of thirty thousand men under bonaparte's orders with these he sailed from toulon in may seventeen ninety eight a british fleet under nelson had been sent into the mediterranean to watch this great french armament destined as many supposed for the invasion of england but for the moment bonaparte and his admiral brouet avoided meeting the enemy they reached malta on the tenth of june and the grand master of the ancient order of st john was summoned to surrender his fortress to the army of the republic this he did and the french having garrisoned malta sailed once more towards the east shaping a course for crete after sighting this island admiral brouet turned southeast and on the first of july arrived in sight of alexandria bonaparte now learned that nelson with the british fleet had been there only two days previously but had sailed away again to the northeast he gave orders for immediate disembarkation 
took possession of alexandria and started the next day on the advance to cairo the capital of egypt in the meanwhile Rouet moored his thirteen line of battleships and frigates as close to the shore as he thought possible and awaited events at the anchorage of Abukir. The British fleet under Nelson had left the Straits of Messina a few days after Bonaparte sailed from Malta. Nelson shaped his course direct for Egypt, crossed that of his opponents so close as nearly to sight them, left them to northwards in the direction of Crete and arrived off alexandria first he then cruised in various directions for information and finally appeared off abukir again on the first of august on sighting the french fleet at anchor the british admiral immediately took his ships into action succeeded in getting part of his fleet between the enemy and the shore and battering the motionless french ships from both sides consecutively sank or captured nearly every one of them the french fought with great courage and obstinacy and admiral bruet was lost with the flagship l'orient whose magazine exploded the daring and skilful maneuver that had turned the french line and placed two british ships opposite each french one had decided the result of this great naval battle bonaparte and his army were now cut off from the world and that in a country where the stores necessary for a european army could not be procured had brouet's fleet not anchored at aboukir but sailed back to malta to corfu or even to toulon the position would have been threatening for england as it was bonaparte and his thirty thousand men were in great jeopardy he proceeded however with his extraordinary enterprise, with an imperturbable self-reliance that inspired all those with whom he came into contact. Egypt was, at that time, a dependent province of the Turkish Empire, ruled by a bey and a dominant caste of military colonists who formed a splendid body of feudal cavalry known as the Mamelukes. They proved, however, no match for the French army, and were crushed by the steady firing of the Republican infantry at the Battle of the Pyramids on the 21st of July. This victory gave Bonaparte possession of Egypt, which he now administered and converted into a source of supply in even more relentless fashion than he had treated Italy. During the autumn and early winter months, he was actively engaged in matters of administration and prepared to turn egypt into a firm base from which the next move might be securely made what that next move might have been is perhaps indicated by the fact that he dispatched a letter to an indian prince then at war with great britain tipu sahib urging him to new efforts and promising him assistance but india and even constantinople were far off and it is best to view as tentative this step of bonaparte's and to treat as only vague purposes the sayings attributed to him at this period in which he referred to the possibilities of founding a new oriental empire or of returning to france by way of constantinople what it is important not to forget is that once in egypt every one of bonaparte's movements was perfectly sound from a military point of view not one of them was based on any considerations in the least approaching the romantic. In January 1799, he had to resume active warfare. 
the sultan decided to drive the french invaders out of his dominions and for that purpose prepared two expeditions one was to proceed by sea the other by land through asia minor bonaparte determined not to await this double attack but to take the offensive and deal with his opponents one at a time accordingly in january he marched across the desert from egypt into syria and after many hardships reached jaffa a small port already occupied by a turkish advance guard there was some severe fighting the town was stormed and captured and the french accepted the surrender of some two thousand prisoners but the question at once arose what was to be done with these men the army was short of food and an arduous march through barren country lay before it if the prisoners consumed rations it would mean privation perhaps even starvation for the army if they were released they would probably rejoin the turks or at all events take to the hills and marauding it was a difficult problem and was resolved in the safest but least merciful way the turks were taken out and shot down this terrible incident has long been one of those most criticized in bonaparte's career yet modern military writers do not hesitate to justify it on the ground that a general can never sacrifice the vital interests of his army to those of humanity this may be true but it might also be pertinently asked was not the unprovoked attack of france on malta and on egypt at least as great a subject for reproach is it not far more important to award blame for the waging of an unjust war than for what is only a military incident of debatable necessity occurring in the course of such a war from jaffa bonaparte marched northwards to encounter the main turkish force and at Accra received a severe check the turks assisted by captain sidney smith of the british navy defended the town with the utmost resolution and after a siege of two months the french were beaten off it was during this siege that a well-known incident occurred sidney smith sent into the french camp a challenge inviting bonaparte to meet him in single combat to which he received the pertinent reply that the french general would accept if the british would produce a marlborough to meet him during these two months the french overran northern palestine and fought numerous engagements against the turks one of which that of mount tabor was a brilliant and decisive victory on the twentieth of may the retreat began and the army after heavy losses and intense suffering owing to lack of food and water and an outbreak of plague reached cairo a month later within a few weeks it was called on to make new exertions for the turkish fleet made its appearance off abukir and there disembarked some ten thousand troops bonaparte collected every available man marched against the turks found them badly posted with their backs to the sea routed and in great part destroyed them this was the battle of abukir july twenty sixth shortly afterwards he gave secret orders to have a small frigate got ready in the port of alexandria and on the twenty third of august seventeen ninety nine accompanied by berthier murat and a few others he 
he left the army and sailed for France. After a long journey and several narrow escapes from British cruisers, he arrived in the Bay of Réjoux on the 9th of October. Had he commanded events and dates at the hand of fate, he could not have chosen better, for the pear was now exactly ripe. One month later, he was the master of France. End of chapter 4 Recording by Linda Johnson